So once again, welcome, welcome everyone. It really is a delight to see all of you in those little boxes there. Uh, and also this time of year, you know, as I was sharing last time, I find that more of the darkness allows me to go inward and it reminds me of the value of this path of the Dharma. And just to remind us, you know, this, this community is about coming together to explore this path of the Dharma and discover what resonates for you and what doesn't resonate for you. So there's like this task at hand for you, what resonates for your heart in terms of what I'm going to be sharing tonight and what doesn't, you know, what's helpful and, and what needs to be set aside. And I also share this if you're new to our group here, that that's the process. It's just merely believing, but it's a coming together as community to explore. So once again, uh, welcome. Some of you were here last week, and last week I shared really as a way of honoring the solstice, that the solstice can be, can be uh, taken in as a a way of beginning again. And as, and as a way of beginning again, I shared with you just some foundational teachings on meditation, on mindfulness meditation from the perspective of this, this tradition. And just to review that, you might have remembered. You remember if you were here, I just offered you, uh, invited you to just feel your hands touching as a way of exa an example of this way of meditating that I spoke about last week. And you might have remembered, even if you do it right now, it's simply the noticing of the sensations of the hands touching. And not so much the concept, oh, my hands are touching, but more what's called the direct experience. I mean, there's something a little inexact about that phrase, but the direct experience of like the warmth or the pressure or the roughness or smoothness of the hands. And then also having a quality of okayness with that direct experience. And if you're not okay, then can you be okay with the not okayness? This was kind of the, the basis of the meditation that so often we're coming to. Uh, noticing, witnessing all of the visitors that come through, whether it be a sensation like the hands, or a thought, or an emotion, a sound, a smell, And to, to really get a sense of the directness of it, not so much following the train of thinking, but maybe just the emotion like nervousness, joy, or the kind of thinking like planning or remembering and practicing being okay with it. This is just basic mindfulness. I'm sure many of you know these kind of fundamental teachings around this. But maybe you've noticed another point, which I think is important. Have you noticed that it's not always so easy to do that with difficulties and challenges? Ever notice that? Well, the only one that noticed that. Like here I give you these instructions and then it can feel like they fall apart when things get tough. So I, I wanna spend some time when things are more challenging, where it's difficult to establish mindfulness. Because I just want to be honest with you, right? This is so much of what meditation practice is about and what our lives are about. We have this tool. Yeah, it's going to work when mindfulness is stronger. And at times, it's not going to work just on its own. So what do you do? 
And it could be anything right now. It could be the stress of the holidays, the, the languishing that arises in the midst of this pandemic, the lack of sunlight. Or it could be internally oppressed by that thought or that emotion. I don't know what it could be, right? It could be, you know, it's COVID time. You have this feeling, oh man, it's COVID time and I haven't been able to be with my family. And then there's that feeling of, loneliness, isolation, or loss. Or maybe it's the oppressive thought or feeling of it's COVID time and I have to be with my family, right? <laughs> it can go either way around that. And, and I want to point out this can happen even when things go, are going well. Have you noticed this? Maybe you sit down to a wonderful meal. You go for that pleasant walk you have some time just to linger and scoot about in the place you're living. And then the worrying arises, right? That thought, why didn't that person get back to me yet? What's going on? Did I say something? Or should I have given that person a gift? Maybe I should have. Or did I say something wrong to that person last night? I wonder if they think I'm angry with them. Or is that person irritated with me because of what just happened? Don't I need to check in with them? Should I send them a text or an email? Have you noticed such thoughts? It's like the spending this time, like your mind spending this time worrying and ruminating on things that you probably don't want to be worrying and ruminating about on that pleasant walk or during that meal or just hanging out. And there they are, those thoughts. Right? The, the mind gets stuck on those things. And yeah, maybe there's a brief moment of mindfulness. Oh, this is worry. Oh, and I can feel it. Oh, it feels like this. But then right, the mind just gets hooked back into that. And, and there's being lost in the habit of thinking like that. So what to do? And I want to share with you one practice to really to add on to what I was sharing last week, which many of you are going to know is just the practice of, of mindfulness. And what's that practice? It's the practice you could say in this form of the question, what else is happening right now that's supportive? And let me give some examples of how this can work. Maybe you can relate to this. For me at night, when I can't sleep. I actually love this practice. It's like, oh, maybe, maybe I won't sleep tonight so I can practice it again. <laughs> and maybe you have these nights, right? The mind here, my mind is it's visited by worry, or it's just like I have a lot of energy. I'm excited. Or there's a lingering irritation or an upset from the day. Or it's like the to-do list pops up the to-do list that I was trying to avoid all day for some reason pops up right when I'm going to sleep. And I do start with being mindful. Oh, worry. Sometimes I use the label of that. So I'm stepping, I'm, I'm attempting to step out of the, 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 the story. Oh, worry, here it is. Oh, it feels like this. And then often the mind, especially when the mind's tired, it's just getting hooked back into the story. 
And then it's so great to ask the question, okay, what else is happening right now that's supportive? And I ask the question, I become curious about my direct experience. Oh, wow, there's something that feels supportive just about just feeling my back touching the bed. There's like a stability there. Oh, when I put my hand on my chest and in my belly and I'm just feeling the breathing. Oh, I can feel the breath in the midst of the tightness of the worry or the irritation and my hands there. Oh, this, this also is, this too is happening right now. Oh, and it feels really supportive. It doesn't mean that like the thoughts or the emotion stops, but it's almost like I'm bringing something into the foreground so I can be with that that's in the background. So it's not about getting rid of, but it's a balancing that can happen. So it's noticing the worry and all these other things. Again, I'm not trying to stop the mind from doing that. It's like rather it's holding all of it in a bigger way. And you might be surprised of what arises when you ask that question. What else is happening right now that's supportive? It could be anything. For example, the difficult phone call that you have and then you hang up. And then there's the spinning of the mind. Oh, I should have said this or that or how could I have said that? And the mind is hooked. To notice that, yeah, with all the things we went over last week, but then if it's too much, it's the sense, the sense of, and what else is happening right now that's supportive? Oh, it's the feeling of the couch. Oh, this is so nice. Or maybe it's looking around the room and there's something spacious about that. It's bringing in this visual data, right? Not denying, rather holding all of it in a bigger way. I want to point out how simple this can be and just to practice it just for a few moments together, just to experiment. And so what I invite you to do is just to, to allow yourself to feel maybe, for example, the breathing and to really slow down right now, just feeling the in-breath and the out-breath. Just the natural breath right now. And then what I invite you to do is to look around, to open your eyes and to see something that feels a little bit supportive. Maybe it's a picture, a plant, and it's really taking in that experience, but at the same time, can you allow the breath to be in the background? So it's holding both of those. It's like switching background and foreground a little bit. And of course, just coming back here around this, often the challenge is going to be much, much more intense than the breath, but it's still that dance that we're doing. It's, it's similar to, I don't know if you've ever gone and had some kind of like medical procedure where, and uh, somebody maybe put in the chat, I know there's like a name for this where you, like rub right next to where you give somebody the shot. Maybe Katie, you know this, 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 um, the name of this. And supposedly bringing in that input helps modulate the pain or the sting of the of the shot. So it's it's 
bringing attention. It's actually pulling the attention in a particular way to help bring a bigger scope of what the attention is bringing in. We're doing something similar uh, in this manner, but we're practicing. The gate theory of pain. Thank you. Only some stimulus can fit through the gate of pain awareness. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. So it's similar to, to that sense there. And yeah, it's, it's more challenging when there's a challenge there. And it can be really helpful to start to learn the skill. And I think that the most powerful and moving accounts of this ability is, uh, especially in the context of intense adversity, is, uh, for me, it's this woman, Eddie Hillisum. Some of you might know of Eddie Hillisum. There was a publication of her diaries from the last two years of her life called An Interrupted Life. And I think there's another book account called Eddie. Eddie Hillisum was a young Dutch Jewish woman who spent the last year of her life in Westerbork transit camp in the Netherlands. And this was uh, between July 1942 and 1943 during World War II. And transit camps, many of you might know, not know what transit camps were, but in Western Europe, when uh, the places where the Nazi regime had taken over, Jews were interned in transit camps, sometimes in ghettos, but in transit camps. And then from those transit camps, that's where they were deported to the extermination camps. And it was well known once you were when shuttled into the transit camp, you didn't know what day it was going to happen, but you knew the end was soon. And when she was there, she was still keeping her diary in the transit camp. This is before going to the extermination camps. And, and you can hear this ability to hold both the horrors of the situation and the things that were supportive. There's just one small passage from her diary where she's there in the transit camp. She says, the sky of, is full of birds. The purple lupins stand up so regally and peacefully. Two little old women have sat down for a chat. The sun is shining on my face. And right before our eyes, mass murder. Yes, something horrific going on in the midst as people are, are, are carted off to these extermination camps. And yet she's also a, has this ability to hold all of it in a bigger way, to allow in the beauty and the love and the tenderness. And even before she went into the transit camp, uh, she, she speaks about her struggle with depression. And it's interesting what she says about it and the turn for her around depression. She says, my depressions are only of the sort that turn life suddenly into something like a muddy ditch inside you. But that ditch is just a short, narrow strip in a wide, blossoming landscape. In the past, everything would suddenly be gray, muddied, and tied. But now I can see the whole landscape, and the ditch is just a part of it.
isn't that poignant? What's going on right now? It's like I, I hear her saying, oh, it's the, it's the muddy ditch of depression. And what else is here that's supporting me? Oh, it feels like this wide blossoming landscape. It's not denying what's going on. It's rather holding it, all of it in this bigger way. And there's many more, I think, uh, examples of this. It's, it's, she just had this uncanny ability in these last two years of her life, especially. And she has the ability to know what's going on and what else is supportive, what else is here in the moment. Well, maybe one, one more thing, because it's so striking. You know, when, uh, when, the, when the day finally came where they put her and her family onto the train that was going to Auschwitz, um, it's just amazing how this happened. While she was in that train, she found a card to write on, and she threw it out the train, and actually somebody found it. And then it kind of came to us to this day. And this is part of what she said on that, that card. She said, you know, I, I'm sitting on my rucksack in the middle of a full freight car. And her, her family is there too. She says, father, mother, and Misha are a few cars away. In the end, the departure came without warning, on sudden special order, order from The Hague. We left the camp singing. Wouldn't that be powerful to be able to leave to the end singing? It's a way of holding all of it in a bigger way. And, and I wanna point out the mind's tendency to get sucked into difficulty, a, a way to get stuck that way, it's habitual. Those are habits, they're habitual ways of thinking and feeling. And maybe you know the feeling of this, or you've had this insight into your own mind of this is something that you've struggled with. I know I have. Of like, it can feel like living on this certain merry-go-round of thoughts and emotions. And yeah, the content's different, but the dynamic is similar. And the, the, it's like the attention gets mesmerized and pulled into those stories in terms of also, especially where there's worry or fear, anxiety. This is why I love one of these words that describes this path as being a path of disenchantment. Like my mind, it's enchanted, it's mesmerized by these habits of thinking and feeling. The habit of worry, anxiety, of irritation. And it just gets mesmerized by them. And it just feels like it really is this merry-go-round of suffering that happens in these hearts and minds. And to become disenchanted what a relief to get off that merry-go-round, to step out of those habits of mind. It's becoming disenchanted with like the refuge of worry. And it can become a refuge for the heart and mind. Right? You, you're worried about your child out at night, and there's actually no indication that something has gone wrong, and yet your mind is worrying. And on the surface, worry can masquerade as feeling better than doing nothing. Sometimes there can be such a fear of just sitting there 
in the not knowing, in the uncertainty. It's like the mind needs something to do, so it takes the refuge of worry. It's just the habitual way the mind has learned to navigate the world. So what's the training? What's some more details about this training of this practice that I'm sharing with you? The, simply asking the question, what else is happening right now that's supportive? And I need to be clear of where I got this from because I sometimes forget this. I do, again, a shout out to my wife. She's the one that kind of designed this from the practice, which I think is so brilliant in so many ways. So how to train in this? What else is happening right now that's supportive? One way is uh, through daily reflections, which is kind of a, you know, not the direct way I've been talking about, but more of these other practices that I found so helpful. And when I talk about daily reflections or daily recollections, it's connected with this Pali word anusati, which is sometimes uh, translated as to recollect. And they're classical recollections that the, the Buddha invites a practitioner in, engage in. So this is different than mindfulness meditation that I was talking about last week. It's actually taking some time to reflect on things from the past to think about. For example, one is to reflect on one's ethical conduct, but not so much what you got wrong, it was more what you did well. This is the reflection on and the recollection around ethics. What did I do well today? Oh, I picked up a piece of trash. How wonderful. Oh, that feels so good. And then the cool thing about Buddhism is I get to list all the things I didn't do. I didn't hit anybody. I didn't kill anybody. That is so cool. I, still, I know it's, it's not, the day is not over. I haven't yelled at anybody today. Well, that feels good. Ah, what am I doing? I'm, it's a practice. I'm orienting to the, the attention to what's going well. I'm orienting the attention to the blossoming landscape rather than to the small, narrow ditch that my mind gets lost in. What is that? What can you recollect? This can be another good thing is, is what fits in here would be a gratitude practice, which I'm sure many of you do. Again, it's orienting. It's actually, actually training the attention to orient in a particular way, to think about ways, uh, think about these, these, these things that are so supportive or Buddha Nusati, which is the recollection of the qualities of the Buddha. One way of understanding that is it's reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha that you've been engaged in. We're in a moment of mindfulness just a little while ago here. We felt the breath. Oh, that's so wonderful. To reflect that I did that. Kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. It could be the kindness of taking your dog for a walk or scratching your cat behind the ears or saying hello to your neighbor. There are wonderful things going on every day, and the training is to orient the attention to them and reflect on these. On some of these re recollections, the, the, the Buddha is offering these recollections in one passage to this uh, fellow by the name of Mahanama, this lay practitioner. He basically says, you know, you should be practicing these recollections while you're walking, standing, sitting, while you're lying down, when you're busy at work. And this is the one I like, while you're resting in your home crowded with children. 
So even if your your home is chaotic, you can still be recollecting on these wholesome things to train the attention to go in a certain way rather than the habitual groove of getting hooked. This is one practice that can be so well, be so supportive of, of supporting what else is going on that's supportive. And then around present moment stuff, and I started with an example of that. In formal meditation or during the day, if there's time for mindfulness during the day, is to practice stepping out of the story. Because it, again, it's, it's, it's training the attention in a particular manner. And to be able to stop mid-sentence. Because a lot of that, it's just habit. It's the habit of worry or anxiety or whatever it is. It's not about stopping the thinking. This is important. It's just helping the attention to direct in a different way, to maybe see something in the room that's supportive, to hear a sound. The thinking's going to come up again. That's so okay. We're not here to fight it. And then to direct again. This is not about fighting or stopping. It's about broadening, holding all of it in a bigger way. This is really important. And this is why when I'm meditating, I pause when I realize the mind's lost in thought. Because often, if I just jerk the mind back into feeling the breathing, often there's some aversion there, like I'm trying to fight the emotion or the thought rather than simply noticing it. Well, there it is, anger. Yep, that's all it is. <laughs> Judging, yeah. And then coming back. So that, that space is important, so there's an okayness there. And then, then sometimes it is directing the attention to how that emotion feels in the body. Sometimes the mind is still going to be hooked from that. So then I ask, what else is here right now? That's supportive. Maybe it's a sound. Maybe I'm opening up my eyes. And yet, at first when stepping out of, out of stories, sometimes it can feel like neglecting or dismiss, dismissing that experience. That's a good sign that, right, that that's actually a habit pattern. The mind is mesmerized. So it's going to feel abrupt, unnatural. If it feels unnatural, that could be a good thing because you're training your mind to do something different. And it can be helpful to start to feel the bodily experience. There's a lot of dimensions to that, which I won't go over right now, but it can be so helpful. So stepping out and then noticing what's supportive. So maybe one last example of this. Yeah, let me just take a look here. I remember when I first started teaching, I used to have these horrific, some of you have heard me uh, talk about this, shame spirals. So I'd, I'd give a talk or I'd share something I feel like I could time it. So I'd give the talk, I'd finish. This is right when I was beginning to teach, early 2000s. And um, it would start as a feeling in the body, just this really unpleasant feeling in the body. And then like, like 15 minutes after offering something, the thoughts would just, the self-incriminating thoughts would just gain momentum. And they were so believable. It's like a whole world started to form 
and I could feel myself getting sucked into them. And, and I want to say it was challenging. And it was so helpful to have these elements of the practice. Yeah, to start with naming it, to step out of the thinking. This was really important to have this skill, to step out of it, right? To see if I could stop mid-sentence, feeling it in the body, and then most importantly, what else is here? Often it was visual. You know, often the best thing would to be go for a walk because I could feel like my feet or I'd see something really beautiful. And it would be like what we just did with the breath. The whole feeling of the shame spiral would be there, but it'd be more in the background or at least balanced. And I'd be bringing in these other things that were in foreground that really started to allow this dynamic to change over time. And it was because I was stepping out of that groove with these other, other practices. Not denying or trying to push away, but really holding it in a, in a bigger way. Still stepping out of the thoughts. And I think what can start to happen over time is just as, as Eddie Hillsom discovered the beautiful landscape kind of poetically around the ditch of depression, what I've noticed is that uh, you might be able to find the beautiful landscape of the Dharma in your heart in challenging times. Because sometimes when I ask what is what else is here and that's that's supportive, sometimes it's just right there in the experience. Oh, mindfulness is here. Oh, I'm afraid right now. And so cool. Here's mindfulness. Oh, here's a little bit of equanimity. And it's right here. And those can come to the fore, like the foreground and background. Oh, and then, then that is the discovery of the true refuge. Not just some sight, but these qualities of heart that can carry us through. Not denying what's going on, but rather holding it in something bigger, namely the Dharma. I, I want to just end by Going back to Eddie, Eddie Hillisum. I, she is one person that I continue to be so inspired by just from her example of her life. And I feel like to learn the skill is a way of honoring her. It was one of her hopes and aspirations for the purpose of her brief life. She was murdered at the age of 29. And so I want to share with you, I want to end with uh, a last part of, of uh, a part of her diary this is what she says this is, again the last two years of her life when she wrote this she says living and dying sorrow and joy the blisters on my feet and the jasmine behind the house the persecution the unspeakable horrors it is all as one in me, and I accept it all as one mighty whole and begin to grasp it better, if only for myself, without being able to explain to anyone else how it all hangs together. 
I wish I could live for a long time so that one day I may know how to explain it. And if I'm not granted the, that wish, well then, somebody else will perhaps do it. Carry on for where, from where my life has been cut short. And that is why I must try to live a good and faithful life to my last breath, so that those who come after me do not, do not have to start all over again and need not face the same difficulties. Isn't that doing something for future generations? Striking. I want to say, you know, her, her diaries, th these words, weren't found until the 1980s. They were found in an attic where they were left and somebody had discovered them and then finally uh, published in the 1980s. So close to 40 years after she died. So may we learn to be in the world in a deeper way, to honor those in the past like Eddie Hillisum who carried such wisdom forward for us and to honor those who will come after us with the wish that they too might find a deeper way of being in this beautiful yet troubled world. So thank you, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.